So King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors and the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before that image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, hype, bagpipe and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time certain... Sorry, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace." And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats and their other garments and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counsellors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out 
and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out from the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counsellors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thank you, Lauren. What do you fear the most about following Jesus? Jesus makes it clear right throughout his ministry that if you want to follow him, if you want to be his disciple, then you can expect a bed of roses. And by that, I mean a bed of roses with lots of sharp, big thorns. He promises over and over again in the Gospels that being his disciple means suffering, persecution, and rejection. John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. What persecutions are you afraid of experiencing when you refuse to bow to the idols of this world and instead stand for Jesus? What are you afraid of losing? You see, I ask this question because our passage in Daniel 3 this morning is well known among Christians. If you have been a Christian for a while, I'm sure you would be familiar with this story. It shows the incredible courage of three Israelite men who choose to entrust their lives to God and who are willing to yield their bodies to the flames as a result. But the possibility of this happening to us today is so remote that it's hard to relate to such a circumstance. You see, even if we were to give our lives for Jesus, uh, even that, it would be unlikely that most of us would be burned for it. But that doesn't change the fact that the truth of this passage still applies to us today. And so with our Bibles open in Daniel chapter 3, let's hear what God has to say to us this morning. I have three points for you as we work our way through. Number one, worship one. Number two, face the fire. And number three, rejoice in rescue. The first point will be by far the longest out of the three. So... Let's begin at point number one. Worship one and one alone. Worship one and worship one alone. As we noted last week, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist and he worshipped many different gods. At the beginning of this chapter, we see him seeking dedication to him as the king from his god, uh, sorry, to, to him as the king and dedication to his gods from his officials. And so as he gathers all of these different uh, people who hold positions in his kingdom and does what he, we're about to see, he is wanting to make sure that they are faithful to him, that they are loyal to him. He makes it very clear that you are either with him or you are against him. And so we're going to find out very quickly from this whether you are or not. And so he builds this huge image you could also call it a statue or an idol on a bit of land called Jura, the, uh, not Jurak, Jura, the location of which is uncertain. So we don't know exactly where it was uh, today. It was 60 cubits high, 60 cubits tall, which is roughly about 27 meters. This Jaguar E-type sculpture uh, in the UK is roughly about the same height. And so that gives you a sense of it. You can see the, the size of the people there at the bottom. 
Uh, or it's roughly about the size of a building with eight or nine floors on it. And this statue, this idol that he makes, is made of gold. Well, more likely it was actually covered in gold, which is also not unusual to do with big statues. And the interesting thing about this statue is that even though it is 27 meters tall, it is only 2.7 meters wide. So not very wide at all. And the Bible doesn't tell us whether it, it was made in the image of a person or perhaps one of Nebuchadnezzar's gods or not. It just gives us the dimensions. And so given the ratio and the dimensions of this idol, it's unlikely that the whole thing was actually the image of a person. The proportions would just be way off. Um, but it's possible that it had an image of Nebuchadnezzar on top of a large column, like Nelson's column in the UK. That one is actually 50-something metres. Uh, but that it could look potentially something like that. Or it's possible, it's perhaps also even probable, that it was just an obelisk, which is basically, it looks like the Washington Monument that I, saw you, uh, that I showed you last week. Uh, it, it could just be that, which often represented the king uh, or his gods. We have archaeological examples of that from ancient history. Well, whatever it was, Daniel doesn't give us the particulars. So even though you might have seen, you know, uh, kids' cartoons or picture books that have a picture of Nebuchadnezzar uh, in it, uh, we don't actually know that that's what it would have looked like. Uh, as a matter of fact, given the dimensions, it's po quite probable that it didn't look like that at all. But whatever it was, Daniel doesn't give us the particulars. And that's because the point is, he wants us to know what Nebuchadnezzar made, what he did, and why he did it. And we see that purpose in the next couple of verses. You may have noticed that in verses 2 and 3, they are almost identical. You can see there that the, those lists and, and the description of what happens is almost exactly the same. Uh, now, I remember as a kid, uh, we had a tape um, for the young'uns here. A tape is what we used to listen to music on and audio and things like that before the era of smartphones. Uh, they were incredibly frustrating devices, but anyway. Uh, we had a tape of this story of, uh, in Daniel 3, and I remember the narrator, he, he said uh, in this kind of you know, funny voice, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the pre treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of all the peoples, and he said it in this kind of funny, lilting, rhythmic kind of way, which was great, and I, and I thought that was excellent. But then he got to verse 3, and he just went, went all over again, the same thing. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors. And, the, and, and, I was, and I, you know, at that point, my brain was wondering, what, hang on, why, what's the point of repeating all of these positions again? We, we get it. You know, we heard it the first time. Why do we need to hear it again? Um, it's, it's, it's surely not essential for that repetition. Well, apparently, the, uh, the Greek translators of the Septuagint agreed with me, and they actually left out the repetition of that list entirely in their translation of verse 3. If you are somebody who likes to speak economically, perhaps you would have done the same. No, no wasting words. But in doing so, the, the translators, they left out something that Daniel was trying to communicate with his repetition here in verse 3. You see, the repetition is a satirical take on all of this ceremony and this calling together of these officials from all the land. It is meant to point out the absurdity of such an exercise. And one of the reasons it's so absurd is because of the end of chapter 2, which we saw last week. The king has been told by God, the God of heaven, the God of gods, the Lord of kings, in a dream and its interpretation through Daniel, that his very kingship and his rule over such a great kingdom has been given to him by God. The one who is far above him, even though he might be the, the king of kings. You know, that's an accurate title. There is a king above him, a king of the king of kings. And at the end of that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar even seemed to understand this. We don't know how long has passed between chapters 2 and 3, but Nebuchadnezzar has obviously forgotten the lesson of chapter 2. Or perhaps he just doesn't care much for it. Or perhaps even worse, he is suppressing that truth and he's living in denial. It seems like the thing that stood out most to Nebuchadnezzar from his dream and the interpretation was the fact that he was the head of gold. 
It must have, you know, you know, sometimes when people talk to you and you kind of catch the first bit and then the rest just sort of sails on by. Don't ask my wife whether I do that or not. It seems like that's perhaps what happened with King Nebuchadnezzar. He hears the interpretation. He hears that he is the head of gold and he thinks, excellent, I need to make an idol of gold that is an attribution to my greatness. And so we read about the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the councillors and the magistrates and the treasurers and the justices and all the officials of the provinces. And they gather together for the dedication of this image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up and they're standing before it. And as we read about this in verse 3, we think to ourselves, wait a second, didn't I just read that the greatest king is the God of heaven? Didn't Nebuchadnezzar just call him the God of gods and the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries? Surely the natural response after that would be to bow down before him, to the God of gods, and to worship him. But no. Instead, we have Nebuchadnezzar demanding that all of his officials bow to him. And the ceremony and the repetition and the absurdity, they continue. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigger and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music... You ought to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, as a side note, these lists of uh, both of the officials' positions and these instruments, they have words that scholars have debated over, over the years. Some, for example, from these lists are loan words from Greek or Persian. And given the intermingling of the different peoples at the time, I, I don't find it hard to believe that Daniel would use such words. But before we move into this next section, just, just picture this scene in your minds. Here is this enormous statue covered with gold, with every important person that you can imagine from the kingdom of Babylon crowded around it. And here is this sizable symphony of instruments ready to play some piece of music that matches the, the ego of King Nebuchadnezzar. The Nuremberg rallies of Nazi Germany in the 20th century it also had the ceremony and the music and calls to unity. That probably gives you a, a similar sense of what Nebuchadnezzar was seeking to achieve in this big event. The king has gathered all of them with this big ceremony, with a big symphony and this big moment where everyone shows their allegiance to him and to his gods by bowing to this idol and worshipping it. And with that instruction to bow comes a threat in verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, that escalated quickly. Execution by being burnt alive was not unknown in the ancient world. We even have an example in Scripture in Jeremiah 29, 22. And if you had a furnace nearby, which perhaps had just been used to smelt like tons of gold to, to cover this idol, there flaming away, you know, just, just hot and, and red, you can imagine that that would probably serve as a very visual representation of a very real threat. When the emperor Nero used Christians as human torches to light up his gardens in the first century, here is an artist's recreation of it from the 1800s, you can bet that the witnesses of that knew what the consequences were. It would have been a pretty strong deterrent. And no doubt this was the effect on Nebuchadnezzar's officials, standing in that crowd, hearing those instructions. And so, of course, as the band played, everyone obeyed. Everyone, that is, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, even though these are their Babylonian names, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, I think the reason most of us know them by their names 
and by these names is because their names are repeated a lot throughout this chapter. It's like Daniel really wants you to grasp the fact that it is these three guys who did not bow. His three close friends who remained faithful to their God and worshipped only him. And we don't actually know, by the way, where Daniel was in this story. The Bible doesn't tell us. It could be any number of reasons as to why he was not present. And uh, it's fun to think about those, but it's not terribly important. What is important is the key turning point in verse 8. The Chaldeans, as we've seen over the last few weeks, they were an ethnic group in Babylon. But the term was also used to describe the astrologers and the magicians in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And the malice against Daniel's three friends here could very well be driven by their jealousy of Nebuchadnezzar's promotion. You remember that at the end of chapter 2 of Daniel and his friends. Or it could be that they uh, just didn't like them because they were Jews. That might be why they specify that they are Jews in verse 12. And if you remember, if you were here last week during question time, we talked about the Jewish order of the Old Testament. And in that order, the book of Esther actually comes immediately before Daniel. And one of that book's big main points is how the Jews were hated by Haman. Either way, whatever their motives were, we see that their actions uh, were to try and trap them, these three men. And if this feels kind of familiar to you, well, it's because there are some striking similarities between this and chapter 6 of Daniel. And that's where some of the officials maliciously accuse and trap Daniel so that he might be fed to the lions. And similarly with chapter 6, it's worth noting that the defiance of these three It had to be pointed out to the king. He did not even notice. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't making a big song and dance about their defiance. They weren't letting everybody know around them, hey guys, see see what I'm doing here? I'm not bowing, you know? No, they weren't trying to make a public statement about their stand against the king. They simply did what they knew the Lord commanded them to do, And then they left the circumstances and the outcome of their actions up to God. There's something in that for us. When you stand for God, when you make a stand for Him and against the idols of our world, refuse to bow, who do you want to notice it more than anyone else? Is God your audience? Or is someone else? Well, as the Chaldeans made their case, they did it in the same way lawyers do. They quote the very words of the lawmaker back to them. And this is exactly what they do. Note once again the repetition and the mental image that that gives us of this scene. They list all the instruments. And the Chaldeans quote the decree and they ensure that they don't forget the punishment, the threat at the end of it for all who do not bow down to the image and worship it. You can almost hear the barely suppressed glee in their voices as they prepare to send these three to their deaths. Malice, you see, It delights in the suffering and pain of others. And verse 12 is basically just dubbing them in. Notice how they really emphasize the point. (laughs) These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. For an insecure and egotistical king like Nebuchadnezzar, that's a good way to play it. Have you ever wondered what happens when an idol is offended? Well, here it is in verse 13. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that they be brought. Rage or even in its more subtle forms of anger and frustration, 
can be a sign of an offended idol. The idols in our own hearts, when they are not worshipped, they often produce the same result in our own lives. Husbands and wives, does this describe the reaction uh, that you give sometimes when you don't get the honour that you think you deserve from your spouse? Or parents, when you don't get the unquestioned obedience from your children that you demand? Those of you who are employed in teams or perhaps who are in positions of authority, does a lack of recognition for your position or for your giftings or from your contributions from your co-workers, does that leave you frustrated or angry and unable to joyfully serve as though you are serving the Lord in your work? Or what about when your church doesn't provide an avenue for your gifts in the way that you would like them to be expressed? What failure of others to bow to your demands, to your idols in your own heart, causes you to lash out in anger? Brothers and sisters, where that is present, there is likely an idol at the very center of it. And such idols, they blind our eyes and our hearts and they keep us from loving others the way Christ calls us to. Nebuchadnezzar was no believer at this point, that's for sure. Which is why his response is one that we would expect. Perhaps there's a glimpse here uh, in this next section of his favor upon these men because he tries to give them another chance. Once again, the list of instruments is repeated and he tells them that he is willing to strike up the symphony again to give them another opportunity to bow to his idol. But he also makes it abundantly clear that he will still follow through on the punishment. There is yet another example of idolatry. I'll give you every opportunity to bow. And in the most telling question that truly reveals that he has left behind the dream and the interpretation that troubled him so much that he was willing to kill all of his musicians if he couldn't get an interpretation, the thing that was keeping him up night after night, he has left it behind and he asks... Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Perhaps in his arrogance, perhaps in his uh, grand self-inflated view, he figured that the revealer of mysteries knew things but couldn't do things. That he was a God of knowledge but not of action. Well, Nebuchadnezzar epitomizes our world in this, doesn't he? Psalm 14 reminds us, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Those who rage against God continue to utter such challenges to him. What can your God do to compete with what I have done? What can your God do to stop what I want to do? Where are His miracles? Where is your God that you've used to keep filling the gaps in our understanding of the universe as those gaps get smaller and smaller and our knowledge and our science fills them more and more? Where is your God when I have a gun to your head? Is He going to save you now? To be honest, I've wrestled with this question throughout my Christian life. Some Christians will tell you that such physical proof is necessary to prove the existence of God. Or at the very least, it's necessary to convince others that He exists. If God would just do something, some kind of miracle or some kind of supernatural thing, then they will believe. 
You can understand why people get carried away in Christian movements that seek to see these kinds of supernatural things happen in their witness to others. They want to be able to answer Nebuchadnezzar by saying, God will deliver me out of your hands. You just wait and see. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they did not share that perspective. The king's question right here tested their faith and they gave a response for the ages. How would you respond? Which God will you worship? Will you bow to the idol upon pain of death? Or will you bow to the one true God by standing against it? These next verses are my favorite in the whole story. They are the only words spoken by the three in this chapter. Let's read them from verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We have no need to answer you in this. Personally, I'm amazed that Nebuchadnezzar didn't just cut them off there and then throw them into the furnace straight away. Can you hear the, the settled position that comes with that sentence? We have no need to answer you. These three, they knew whom they worshipped. They worshipped the one, him alone, the only God. And even if they hadn't been given the opportunity to change their minds, they were thrown immediately into the fire, there would have been no need for them to say anymore. But I'm thankful that they were given this opportunity because in their responses, we are given, they've given hope to God's people for centuries and for millennia. These faithful men of God knew what God had commanded this, after all, what Nebuchadnezzar is demanding is a textbook violation of the second commandment, which we find in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. That's why there was no need to give them an answer. It was an open and shut case. They would not do it. And I love their response because it shows a trust and a confidence in God that understands that He is more than able to deliver them from the burning fiery furnace and from the king's hand. They have no concerns about the fact that God is able to do that. Why? Well, who knows what other trials and testing they would have experienced before this. Whatever it is, those trials, the, the faithfulness of God in their lives have produced in them a perseverance in, to the point where they knew that God could be trusted. They knew that whether He rescued them from this furnace or not, He had not failed them before and He would not fail them now. He is able to deliver us from the furnace and He will deliver us out of your hand. But you see, their response shows that they are not only trusting and confident in God and His ability to deliver them, it also shows a humble surrender to God as the one who does as He pleases. They yielded their bodies to God. And not only because they likely had personal experience of God's faithfulness in their own lives, but because they knew their own history as God's people. They would have known about how God delivered their entire nation from an earlier king in Pharaoh, who also thought of himself as one who could challenge God. The Ten Commandments are actually given in context of this very fact. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is why they wanted to and knew they could place their trust in God. 
But I also reckon that they knew that Israel, the reason Israel was in exile because of their disobedience and that this was God's judgment on them. And so whether God delivered them from the furnace or not, God did not owe it to them to do that. And that's why they could say in verse 18, even if not, we will not serve or worship or bow down to your idol. Their trust was so firmly anchored, not just in the power of God, but also in His character and in His Lordship. They knew that bowing to other gods or worshipping other idols just to save their skin would ultimately not be worth it. Even if God didn't deliver them from this, ins- from this furnace, they would worship Him alone. This is the crux of the issue. And it is the crux of the issue for us. Whom will you worship? There is not a single day of your life where you will not experience pressure from within and pressure from without to bow to an idol or a false god. The idols of your own heart and the idols in the world demand your worship. The inner idols of being in the cool group or of having success or having the picture-perfect body or the picture-perfect family. The idols from, of the world, of progress, of so-called tolerance, of grasping for power, of political partisanship, of sacrificing morality for pragmatism, of treasuring this life more than the one to come. Will you bow to those idols? Or will you bow to the one who has no equal? The jealous God who will not share his glory or your heart with anyone else. Brothers and sisters, which idolatrous pleasures and pressures and demands are the strongest temptations for you? Which of the things that I've just listed or anything else are the things that you find make you weakest at the knees? As I mentioned at the beginning, bowing to an actual physical idol with the threat of execution is not a scenario that most of us will likely face in our lifetimes. Yet the elevation of anything other than God Himself, to the status of God, to to His seat in the throne of your lives and of your heart. That is the same as bowing and worshipping a 30-meter golden obelisk. And that is a daily battle for all of us. Brothers and sisters, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego... Make up your mind today whom you will worship. Worship one. Worship him and him alone. Remind yourself of the character of God. Remind yourself of the acts of the one whom you serve. Of all that he has done for you. Train your heart to trust in Him even when you feel the heat of the fiery furnace. Because you will feel it. And that brings us to point two. Face the furnace. There are consequences for bowing to idols. That's for sure. The Most High God and the Creator of all things, He is owed the worship and service of His creatures. 
We are morally obligated to worship Him. Which is why there are consequences for not doing that and worshipping idols instead. But there are consequences for standing against idols too. As Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And because I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. They can throw you into the fiery furnace. As we saw before, rage is often a response, the response of an offended idol. And here the king responds with rage again. It's an age-old response, and it happens every day on the planet. If you don't believe me, post something on your social media later on today, something that is biblically true and loving, but also against the grain of what is considered to be politically correct or socially acceptable. Do it as, and word it as kindly and as gently as you possibly can. And then tell me what the responses are. We live in an era of hair-trigger outrage, of trial by media, of swift retractions and unforgiving judgment for things people did decades ago. This is the response of an offended idol. Are you ready to feel the fury and fire of worldly idols? Which furnace so to speak, do you fear the most? Nebuchadnezzar's rage blinded him so much that he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times, meaning to its maximum heat. And he ordered some of his strongest men to bind up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the fire. It seems that he wanted to be absolutely sure that these guys didn't try and make a break for it. And yet, because he was so blinded by his rage and didn't think it through, the urgency of his order and the heat of the furnace killed some of his best soldiers. But he got what he wanted. The three fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Do you ever wonder how they must have felt as they approached the flames? Other than hot, of course. Do you wonder what was going through their minds, in their hearts? What it would be like to be prepared to be thrown into that? In the many years since this event, Christians have faced the literal flames many times. Another trio who came to be known as the Oxford Martyrs were burned at the stake in 1555 and 1556 for their refusal to bow to idols. Robin told me this morning that we're out of tissues, so I can't cry this morning. I'm... <laughs> uh, I'll try and get through it, though. Two of, these, of this trio were the bishops Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They both embraced Protestant theology and rejected much of the Catholic Church's teachings. And so they were tried as heretics and they were sentenced to be burned at the stake. On the morning of the execution, Ridley comforted his friend by saying, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame, either lessen it, or else strengthen us to abide it. And later on, as they were being engulfed in flames, Hugh Latimer encouraged his friend by saying, Be of good comfort and play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never be put out. 
God is able to save. He will save. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down or worship your false gods. Throughout history, some Christians have been saved from the fires and others not. Christ's followers have remained faithful even in the midst of the fire. All of us, I think, instinctively hope for and pray that God will deliver us from the furnaces that we face. And sometimes those furnaces are losing jobs or opportunities or promotions for not participating in faith-compromising activity. And therefore, all of the consequences and hardship that comes with that. Other times it is losing reputation or social standing, being seen as the loony bin for choosing something intangible like eternal life over something tangible like this life. And in this, even within the broader camp of those who would call themselves Christians, we are seen in the same way. How many today would label Hugh Latimer and Ridley crazy and overzealous for going to the stake over something like transubstantiation, which is the belief that Christ's actual body and blood are present in communion? That is basically what Latimer was convicted of heresy over. He was willing to die for that. Sometimes those furnaces are being slandered or perhaps being misrepresented or being the target of those who maliciously accuse as the Chaldeans did. Are you prepared to face the furnace? To be bound and to be tossed into it whether God saves you physically from it in this life or not. Brothers and sisters, this is not an easy thing. Which is why I thank God that He is one who mercifully rescues us. And that brings us to our third and final point. Rejoice in rescue. Don't you just love the turning point in verse 24? Nebuchadnezzar's rage is extinguished and gives way to astonishment as he jumps up from his seat and he rubs his eyes doing a a double and and a triple and a quadruple take. He's so confused by what he's seeing that he has to confirm it with his counselors. And I mean, think about, it. think about this. Seeing the three men that he has just tossed into the furnace alive and unbound and walking around, that would be wild enough. The fact that the flame burned through the rope but then did not burn them up along with their cloaks and tunics and hats and all the other things they were wearing. But it's not just that. There is now also a fourth person in there. And he looks like, according to Nebuchadnezzar, a son of the gods. It's an interesting description, that one. Especially because some think that this fourth person was the son of God. Jesus himself, before he was incarnated and took on human flesh. I'm pretty sure in Praise Factory, when you tell that story, that's what they say. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us definitively anywhere whether it was or not. I'm certainly open to that uh, very real possibility. But I will leave you to talk about whether that is the case or not over lunch. Whether it was Jesus or whether it was an angel of God, the point is clear. God was with them in 
the fire, and he rescued them from this furnace. We don't get to hear what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's responses were, but it doesn't take much imagination to think that they were probably extremely relieved and extremely happy. The king, he calls them out, calls them to come out, and we see another, a hint at another step towards faith for Nebuchadnezzar. He acknowledges that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are servants of the Most High God. And guess who's there to witness the whole thing? Well, it comes full circle. All the satraps and the governors and the prefects and the, all the king's counselors. Have a read of what all of these officials witnessed in verse 27. They saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Even though the fire had been heated up to its maximum temperature, it had zero effect on them. Not a hair of their heads, not even a thread, a loose stray thread on their cloaks, not even a whiff of smoke. God's rescue was complete. He didn't halfway do it. The only thing that he had allowed to be burned away were the ropes that bound them. And so Nebuchadnezzar responds by blessing God and recognizing what it is that he has done. And he recognizes that what these three resolved to do and what they had to say about Nebuchadnezzar's decree and, and what they had to say about their God whom they worshipped in verses 17 and 18 was part of the reason why God rescued them. He sees that. They trusted in God. They did not bow to the king's idolatry and they yielded their lives to serve and worship their God and Him alone. And so as a result, again, it also comes full circle. The king issues a decree. And it is almost the opposite of the decree that he gave at the beginning. It certainly sounds like a Nebuchadnezzar decree. You know, you're removing limbs and destroying houses. That sounds familiar. And even though, like last week, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar has some kind of, perhaps, faith there are signs that he hasn't taken this on himself completely at all. This is still, after all, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not his God. And once again, we'll see next week that he still hasn't humbled himself by that stage. And so Nebuchadnezzar promotes them to a position, uh, I'm not really sure what position, uh, it's unclear because he promoted them at the end of chapter 2 as well. So obviously there's, there's a few levels that they could uh, escalate to. And the result of God's work, rescuing work here, as it most often does, it results in the proclamation of who he is and what he has done. Let me ask you this morning, is that what God's rescue of your life has resulted in? The proclamation of who he is. The proclamation of what he has done. In the saving of the lives of these three, God literally fulfilled a promise to his people from Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that this promise is fulfilled for you in Christ? 
Yes, it's true that you haven't passed through the waters of the Red Sea or the River Jordan. It's true that you haven't been thrown into a burning, fiery furnace and been rescued by God. But you have died to self and you have passed through the waters of baptism and in Christ you have been plucked out of the fires of hell. If that doesn't describe you this morning, if you have not trusted in Him, let me encourage you to come and talk to me about that later. When we are Christ's, We can face the furnace of our idols because we've been delivered from the greater furnace of judgment for our sin. Not by our works, but as a gift of grace. Is that the testimony that would be given about your life by the surrounding witnesses? Do people see in you one who has been plucked from the flames, on whom there is not even a scent of fire, There is not even a singe of a single strand of hair. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the rescuer. Rejoice in the one who has rescued you. And recognize that it is him who is with you, even in the midst of these earthly flames that we walk through. Christ has rescued you from the eternal furnace so that you might walk through the many and varied earthly furnaces that you will face in this life. And whether He chooses to save you physically from those earthly furnaces or not, He will be with you for all of your days. Jesus has promised that. He will not leave your side. Through the fire, through the floods, through the persecution, through the trials, through the testing, through the hardship, through the suffering, He will not leave you. Remember that. Hold on to that truth. When you trust in Him and when you yield your body to Him as a living sacrifice rather than serving and worshipping any other God, He will sustain you and He will deliver you completely. There won't be even a hint of the judgment that you deserve on the day when He welcomes you into His eternal heavenly kingdom. It won't always be easy. In fact, some of the furnaces that you will have to walk through in this life will perhaps be the hardest things you will ever face. But when you see that Christ bore the fire of God's righteous wrath so that you could be delivered from them, It is in Him that you will find the courage to endure. When you see Jesus and His love for you and all that He has done for you, then your love for Him will outweigh your fear of the furnace. When you see that this one is the God above all gods, when He replaces all other gods in your own heart, You can share in the trust and the confidence and the surrender to him that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. I mentioned two of the three Oxford martyrs before. The third was a well-known and influential Anglican theologian named Thomas Cranmer who was the Archbishop of the Church of England. He also was imprisoned and sentenced to execution by being burned at the stake for opposing the incoming Catholic Church. In a letter to a friend from prison, he wrote, I pray that God may grant that we may endure to the end. At first, it seemed like God didn't answer that prayer. Under significant pressure from Queen Mary Tudor and the Catholic Church, 
And after witnessing the executions of Latimer and Ridley, Cranmer signed recantations of his Protestant beliefs. But on the day he was executed, he had a speech that he had prepared and gave to them to talk about. The queen still wanted him executed despite his recantations. And in the final minutes of that speech, he went completely off script. And he renounced his recantations. As he was burned at the stake, he stretched out his hands, which had signed those recantations, put it into the heart of the fire, and he called it his unworthy hand for abandoning his God. God did answer Cranmer's prayer. God was with him in the fire. And Thomas Cranmer endured to the end. Hebrews 11 is the great hall of faith. We read about the many who kept their faith in God, no matter the circumstances. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are alluded to in that list. We read from verse 33 about those who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Such great acts of faith, such wondrous feats and miracles. Here is God doing impossible things and overturning expectations, working supernaturally in the world to sustain and endure His people. But that is not the complete picture of true faith. Read on from the second half of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might raise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. God is able to save, and He will save. But even if He doesn't, we will not serve or worship or bow down to the idols of our hearts or the idols of the world. Brothers and sisters, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in a world that tries to obscure your vision of him in a world that places 30 meters meter idols in front of you in one that threatens you with the furnace of persecution take courage do not be afraid for he is with you through it all Will you trust in his merciful rescue as you yield yourself to him and to him alone? Let's pray. Our Father, like Cranmer, we recognize that the pressure 
from without and from within. It's sometimes so overwhelming that we don't even know if we will make it through. Father, for each of us in our lives, in the various circumstances and places that you have placed us, God, may we never bow the knee. Lord, turn our hearts and our eyes towards you and to Christ our Saviour, to who you are, to what you have done. May that give us courage. May that enable us to be fearless in the face of the furnace. And may we, by your grace, endure till the very end. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.